0: How big is God? That's the question that determines everything about your life. That's the question that determines whether or not you can live in a life of self-denial or a life of materialistic indulgence. That's the question that determines whether or not you live afraid and in fear or if you live with peace and in calm. That's the difference between joy and despair. How big is God? see, I wonder how many of us, we look at situations and we know that they are impossible. We know that they are beyond us and are overwhelmed. When instead, we have the opportunity through the enormity of God to look at those same situations with anticipation. With anticipation of how God is going to move. With anticipation of how God is going to overcome what seems to be insurmountable in our lives. And so it has to do with not whether or not our pain is real, not whether or not our pain is significant, not whether or not our our pain is superficial or not superficial. Your pain is real. It has to do with how we interpret that pain. It has to do with how we cope with that pain, how we understand and comprehend that pain. Is it aimless? Is it it hopeless? Or, or, Or is it in the hands of one who is far greater, far bigger, far larger that can work all of these things together for a wonderful plan? That's what we see in the life of Joseph. The story of Joseph brings us to the question of how big God is. When we left Joseph last week, you'll remember, you have him, the man of God, with the favor of God, and the promise of God, in the prime of his life, at the bottom of a dungeon. And so the question is, is God really big enough to deliver him? Is God really willing to deliver him? Is the promise of God really irrevocable? Is the love of God really insurmountable? Is he willing to overcome all of these things? And not only is he willing, but is he able to overcome all of these things so that his man, with his favor and his promise, can ultimately triumph? So we look at the hardships of Joseph, and we look at the hardships in our Lives And we have to come to the understanding of whether or not he is big enough or if he is there at all. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to finish up Genesis today. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 42, or 41, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 41. Let's read verses 37 through 57 together. Verses 37 through 57 together. It says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to, to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph hand, Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaniah Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put them in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharad, princess of On bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, and but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to do, you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. God seems to like to back himself into a corner, doesn't he? It's moments of impossibility that provide for him the grandest stage to embarrass human self-reliance. And so God often displays his enormity. He often displays his sovereign rule over all things by working through the laws of contradiction. By working through ways where it appears as though he is going to fail. Working through situations in which it appears as though his people are going to collapse. And there, God shows up in the midst of apparent weakness and apparent impossibility. And he does what no one else believes is able to be done. So if you are a Christian if you are a child of God, if you are living by faith in Christ for the overcoming of your sins, for the strength of your daily life, yours is a life of ironies. Yours is a life of ironies, at least from the perspective of the here and now. It looks like you're failing when you're succeeding. It looks like you're losing when you're gaining. It looks like God has abandoned you, even though God is at work through you. That we, We as Christians, we as his children, believe in the enormity of God and the sovereignty of God. And believing in the enormity and sovereignty of God, we have confidence to face the ironies of our lives. The ironies of providence. And that's what we see in Joseph's life. We see all of this irony, all of this apparent contradiction, all of these seemingly impossibilities being overcome in the life of God's beloved. And I want us to see this morning the ironies of providence so that we can see and we can look back over the course of our lives. I hope that maybe some of these would lodge into your mind so that one day you look back over what looked impossible in your life, what appeared insurmountable in your life, and you're able to see that God was there the whole time, that God was speaking when you thought he was silent, that God was working when you thought he was absent, that the whole time God was working and he was working through contradiction, to humiliate self-reliance and to glorify His name and preserve His people. The first irony I want you to see is that every pain behind you is a crown before you. That every pain behind you is a crown before you. We skipped ahead a little bit this morning in our reading, but if you'll remember last week where we left Joseph, we left Joseph in a forsaken prison cell at 28 years old. In fact, Joseph would celebrate his 30th birthday. And chapter 40, right before it ends, gives us this double emphasis on just how forgotten Joseph was. It says this, it says, Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. That Joseph is there, and he's in the bottom of the dungeon as the man of God, with the favor of God, and the promise of God, in the prime of his life. And there he is in the bottom of the dungeon, and it feels as though he is totally forgotten totally forgotten, even those he has helped, even those he has ministered to, even though he, those he has cared for. They go about their lives and they live and do all the things that they do and they leave Joseph totally behind, utterly forgotten. I wonder how many of you feel that way. I wonder how many of you feel that way. I wonder how many of you lay in your bed in the darkness of the night where nobody can see and you wet your pillow with, with tears. David can remind that. David, at one point in the Psalms, writes that that his tears become food for him. It is though the steadfast Lord, the Almighty God, the one who is greater than all other gods in the history of the world combined, he has seemingly forgotten you. That's how Joseph must have felt. And then Pharaoh has a dream. And then Pharaoh has a dream. And then he has a second dream. And he gathers all of the wise men of his court and all of the diviners and the sorcerers of the day, all of his most trusted advisors around him, and he asks them to interpret his dream. He knows that with two dreams, this is obvious, he, supposed to be, as Pharaoh, the mediator between the divine and humanity, is receiving a word from the divine that is supposed to get to mankind, and he is there in the midst of this loss of interpretation, and none of his wise men can help him. None of them can interpret the dream. And all of a sudden, at just the right time, in just the right place, in just the right way, the cupbearer that had forgotten remembers. He remembers Joseph. Two years after he has been released back into Pharaoh's court, he remembers the little Hebrew boy that came in and helped him to interpret his dream and how all of it came true. And as all of the great men of Egypt, the greatest empire in the world at the time, as all of the great men and all of the great sorcerers and all of the great diviners could not interpret Pharaoh's dream, he says, Hey, Pharaoh, let's throw a Hail Mary. I've got a long shot. I remember the Hebrew boy. Let's bring him and let's see if he might be able to interpret. And so Joseph comes before Pharaoh. And the first thing that that Joseph tells Pharaoh, this is fantastic. You need to go back and read it. He says, I can't interpret your dream. I can't interpret your dream. You've brought me all this way, but I can't help you. But God can. But God can. And in fact, I am convinced that God is Please to interpret your dream. So so tell me your dream, and I'm not going to interpret. This is not going to be me. This is not going to be my wisdom. This is not going to be my strength. This is going to be from God. This is what God is going to tell me, and I'm going to tell it to you. I have no strength in myself. I have no wisdom of my own. I, all of that comes from the Lord. And Joe, and Pharaoh tells Joseph about the two dreams, and Joseph begins to interpret, and the interpretation is so apparent, as Joseph says, that you have to believe that all the wise men of Egypt and Pharaoh himself are like, how did I not get that? How how did I not see that? And he says that there's going to be seven years of unparalleled prosperity, seven years in which... Egypt and all of, is going to prosper in its produce and prosper in its in its uh, in its culture and prosper in its grain. That is going to be unlike any time Egypt has ever seen before. But but as soon as those seven years come to a close, it's going to be followed by seven years of devastating famine of a worldwide famine. And the famine is going to be so severe that the people are not even going to remember the time of prosperity. That they're not going to remember when all of the grain was coming in so abundantly. And so what we need to do, Pharaoh, what we need to do is we need to take a fifth of everything that's brought in over the course of the seven years and we need to set it aside. And we'll set it aside and then Pharaoh will prosper when the world is afflicted. Pharaoh will prosper when all of the other kings are falling apart. In fact, it's going to bring all of the world to your household, Pharaoh, so that they can come and they can get from you all that they need. And they will have to pay for these things. And they will have to give themselves over to you so that they can have everything that they need. And Pharaoh, a pagan king, says something that is more true than he could have ever imagined. He looks at Joseph and he says, this is a wise man in whom is the Spirit of God. That Pharaoh recognized from the words of Joseph that these were not the words of a man. These were, in fact, the words of the divine. That these were the words of a God that is far greater than Joseph, far greater than Pharaoh, far greater than all of Egypt itself. That these are the words of one who was within him and speaking to him. And so Joseph gets a promotion. Joseph tells the cupbearer, you'll remember, just remember, and his hope is, is that maybe he'll get a pardon from Pharaoh, right? That maybe, if nothing else, because of the injustices that he's faced and the kindness that he shows to the cupbearer and the interpretation being true to the cupbearer and to the baker, that maybe then the Pharaoh will remember him and, and release him from his sentence, but he doesn't release Joseph, He calls him into duty and he promotes Joseph to essentially being the prime minister over the greatest empire in the world at that time. So Joseph is promoted in an instant, in a day, out of the dungeon of Egypt and to the throne of Egypt. Out of the prisons of Egypt and to becoming the most second most powerful man in all of the world. And this is a testimony of how God works, isn't it? This is a testimony of how God works. For all of you that have followed Christ for more than 10 minutes, you can see the glimpses of this in your life. That before He fills you, He empties you. That before He lifts you up, He lowers you. That before He brings restoration to you, He breaks you. That... That he comes into your life and he brings you to the end of yourself as we saw in Jacob. And now again repeated in his son. He brings you to the end of of your life and the end of your self-reliance and the end of your strength and the end of your wisdom until you get to the place in which you think I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to turn. I have nothing to do. What hope is there? Oh God. Oh God help me. Oh God I am trusting that you are big enough. I am trusting that you are sovereign enough. I am trusting that you are gracious enough. Listen to how the psalmist said this. He's talking about Joseph in Psalm 105. He says, When he had summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, His feet were hurt in fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. All of that's bad, right? All of that's a hard life. All of that, none of that is a life that any person would willingly choose. And then, and then then he says, until. There is an until in the life of Joseph. And there is an until in the life of every child of God. Until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord came. Tested him. The king sent him and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him Lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. And this is just the Old Testament way of saying what Peter writes to the afflicted church in the first century. Peter writes, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, and here's the until, here's the until, that you may also rejoice and be glad when, not if, when, not maybe, when, not hopefully, his glory is revealed. The path to glory's crown is painful, but it's certain, it's certain. It starts with the mocking voice, and it heads to the scourging post, and it lays on the bloody cross, but it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay there. there. The crown of glory are just as certain to come as the hardship that came yesterday. That's the guarantee of the resurrection. The crown comes not in spite of pain. The crown comes through. And so in Genesis 41, we get these two pictures, at least two pictures, of past pain turning into present crowns. Of past pain turning into present crowns. You know, it's, it's amazing in the story of Joseph just how prominent garments are. How prominent garments are. In fact, you see the word that's translated as garment, it comes up time and again. And, and it, it might be translated as a different word in various translations, but in the, in the root Hebrew word, it's the same All the way through. You'll remember that it was a garment. It was the coat that was given from Jacob to Joseph that marked him as the favorite son. And it was that very same coat that marked his father's favoritism that ended up marking his brother's hatred. It was that very same coat that was supposed to elevate him that seemingly brought him down. Do you see the irony? Do you see the apparent contradiction? He goes and he's sold into slavery because of the coat of many colors. And he's there and he's prospered in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife sees him and she's attracted to him. And she becomes infatuated with him. And she finds him alone and she grabs hold of him. And he runs and he flees the temptation. And he flees the potential to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And do you remember what she's holding? She's holding a garment. She's holding his garment. That he had a garment that elevated him and a garment that brought him down. And now he has a garment that is the representation of the injustice that's in his life. Of the unfairness that's in his life. Of the frustration that's in his life. That now it's a a garment that not only sold him into slavery. But yet another garment that sends him into the dungeon. And yet here he is. He's lost everything, marked by various garments over the course of his life. But here he is crowned. And how is he crowned? With a new garment. A garment of glory and honor. A garment that was given to him, not because he had any wisdom, but because God had provided him the interpretation, listen listen to me church, God transforms the markers of our pain into the praise of his name. God transforms the markers of our pain, the x-ray that comes through, the pink slip that you receive, the divorce papers that you have. He takes the markers of our pain and he transforms them into the praise of his name. Remember those words of Peter? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that, that you may also rejoice and be glad. That the suffering in the life of the Christian, the hardship in the life of the Christian, the frustration in the life of the Christian, the contempt in the life of the Christian, the injustice in the life of the Christian is transformed into rejoice, rejoicing and gladness. That he has given him new clothes, and he has revealed to him new kindness, and he has offered to him new glory, so that every pain behind him becomes a crown before him. Christian it's the same in your life but God doesn't just give Joseph new clothes God gives Joseph a new future do you see the gospel do you see the gospel unfolding here a new garment a new new garment of glory as we are to receive when Christ returns and at the same time a new and secured future that's what the names of his sons represent Manasseh. Manasseh means made to forget. And Joseph says that his firstborn, that because of his firstborn, God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In other words, God's providence proved to be so sweet, so wonderful, so stupefying that the grace of today has overwhelmed the tears of yesterday. That the grace of today has overwhelmed the sorrow of yesterday. That now his life has so utterly transformed that his position has so utterly become apparent in the household of God that he can't even remember the betrayal. He can't even remember the injustice because God has done a transforming work in his life. Ephraim, his second son means fruitful he means fruitful and he says that God has made me fruitful in the land of my addiction uh, uh, my affliction Joseph is going to be feasting during the famine Joseph is going to be calm in the midst of the calamity why how is it possible how is it sure? how is it how could it be glory has come so that now his past struggles showcase his present grace Listen to those words of Peter again. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when, when his glory is revealed. Glory is certain, church glory is certain. The future is given. So we can rejoice today because the glory of tomorrow is more certain than the pain of yesterday. Those of us who hold to the gospel, those two of us who look to the resurrection, we look not to yesterday for our proof, not to what's in front of our faces today. We look to tomorrow and we are certain that because Christ was raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of our resurrection. And so the future is more secure for us than yesterday was hard. You see how a big view of God, a big view of sovereign providence strengthens your spine and steadies your hand and helps you stand up straighter. See, it's a big view of God that will allow you to share the gospel with your family even though they might hate you for it. It's a big view of God that will call a young family and enable a young family to move to the Middle East away from a comfortable life and away from a good life and a life that they love and enjoy to a place that they're not as excited about. Because because today, today isn't all there is. Yesterday isn't all there was. There is a future that is certain. It's what allows people to use their golden years for foster care. It's because we don't need glory now. Glory is coming, and it's coming forever, and it is certain and secured and fastened for the child of God. The second irony that I want you to see is that every power beyond you is beneath the God who sends you. Every power beyond you is beneath the God who sends you. The famine is, in fact, worldwide. As the years of of plenty come to a close, Joseph now closing in on middle age, closing in on 40, the famine is initiated, and the famine comes to the door of Jacob and his boys. That you have Jacob and his eleven remaining sons, and they begin to run out of food. And the word on the street is, the word on the street is, is that Egypt has this new sharp prime minister, and that Egypt is actually in a in a position to have plenty. And so he tells all of his sons, save Benjamin, to go and go into Egypt and to find enough food to sustain them so that they, they can get through the famine okay. And there, as we read, were were distribution centers all across the the empire of Egypt where they had people could come and and buy the grain that they need. And do you know where the sons of Jacob ended up? They didn't end up over in Cairo. They didn't end up on some far-reaching, abandoned county road looking for grain. They ended up at the main distribution center where the prime minister himself was overseeing the operation. And so here are the boys of Israel, of Jacob, coming, and they're standing. And the prime minister says, I need to see them. And, they, and he recognizes them. Joseph immediately recognizes that, he, that they are his brothers. But here is Joseph. They sent him off at 17, and he stands before them at 37, and they don't recognize him at all. And so it begins to... to We begin to see just the drama that's building and this is the the climax of the whole story. And what we're really seeing is the exodus in reverse, aren't we? you ever thought about that? What we're seeing in the story of Joseph is the exodus in reverse. You have Israel and Canaan having to leave Canaan and go to Egypt, which is is supposed to be the land that is flowing with milk and honey. The land that will deliver them. The land that will preserve them. The land that will protect them. And so you have Israel sending his people into Egypt that they might be delivered. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how those those uh israelites that are fleeing egypt and in the midst of the wilderness would have heard these words they would have heard them as strange and yet strange in the household of god is hope isn't it because if god can deliver you through egypt god can deliver you from egypt that if god can use even egypt to accomplish his will, if God can use even Egypt to do good to his people and to preserve his promise and to uphold his covenant, how much more, how much more can God overcome Egypt? See, providence, providence is the ocean in which every stream empties. That God is bringing every tiny underground spring and every mighty river and every afternoon rainstorm together into a single ocean, a single story, a single plan. So as we come to the climax, it's the moment that we've kind of been waiting for, right? Right? As you're reading the story of Joseph and and you have Joseph ascend to such great preeminent power over the world, what you're hoping for, you're hoping that the brothers have to see it. You're remembering the dream that came in Genesis chapter 37 when when Joseph says, I I had this dream, I I didn't ask for it, I I just had had it twice, that all of you are going to have to come and bow before you. And so all of these things began coming into view that seemed impossible when he was in Potiphar's house. They seemed impossible when he was at the bottom of the cistern. They seemed impossible when he was rotting away, forgotten in the prison, but now elevated, clothed in glory, clothed in strength, clothed in majesty, you're, you're expecting it. And so he brings his brothers before him, and he says, you know, I, I'm not sure, maybe, and look, if any of y'all have siblings, can you imagine them having this kind of power over you? Uh, especially, you're, you're going back into your mind to all the things, and you're like, I'm going to pay for my raising now, right? So, so he gathers his brothers, and he says, I think y'all might be like CIA agents. I think you might be spies from a foreign land trying to figure out all of our abundance so that you can come and overtake us. So so I need you to verify your story. And the only way that I'm going to believe you is if you leave one of you here and go all the way back and you get the baby son. You go back and you get Benjamin. And so Simeon stays behind and the boys make the long trek back and Jacob is undone and he says, you've already lied to me and cost me one son and lied to me and cost me a second son, Simeon. Do you think I'm going to trust you with my my last hope do you think that I'm gonna trust you with Benjamin but times get so hard in fact he does and they make the the trek back over with with baby Benji and they're there and they and 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 Joseph fills their sacks and he sends them on their way except he has one of his guys plant on them a silver divining cup and he sends them off, and he 's got the and Benjamin unbeknownst to him, has this this silver divining cup in his sack, and then Joseph, after they 've got just a little way, sends the Texas Rangers after them, and he pulls up and, and they say you 've stolen from the prime minister you 've stolen, and whoever has the cup he he must become a slave in the household of Joseph and all of the all of the israel uh, all of Israel's sons are like, well, go ahead. Look, we didn't steal anything from you. We, we even tried to bring to you the money that you gave us back. We don't, we don't have no desire to do any of this. And they begin to go through the sacks, and, and there is Benjamin's cup. There's the cup in Benjamin's bag. And they're gathered. They, they come, and they think, we cannot go to Jacob and tell them that Benjamin's gone. Jacob will die. And they begin to go, and they, they plead with Joseph for his life and Judah, who had taken personal responsibility For Benjamin steps up to the plate. The tension is building. The drama is building. Do you remember what Judah did? It was Judah's plan to sell him. Into the Midianites. It was Judah's plan to get rid of Joseph and to dip his coat into the, blood, the goat's blood. It was Judah who had preserved himself and profited himself from Joseph's demise. It was Judah that had lived all for himself and none for others. It was Judah that had shown a hard heart and a lack of love. And Judah steps forward and he says, Look, let me take the boy's place. Let me take the boy's place. Let let, let Benjamin go back and I will stay and I will be a slave in your household. Let let me die that Benjamin might be preserved. And Joseph sees the transformation and the repentance in the life of Judah. And he is overwhelmed by it. He is undone by it. He begins to weep so uncontrollably that it says that that houses around him hear him. That all of the servants become concerned that, that that the sons, his brothers become concerned themselves. See, Joseph was not toying with his brothers. He wasn't toying with them by sending them on these journeys and and bringing them back and forth. What Joseph was doing is he was first of all confirming the dream that God had given to him, but he was drawing out repentance. He was drawing out repentance. He was drawing out the, transform, the transforming hand of God in the life of Judah and in the life of his brothers. He was drawing out for them who had lived so ferociously for themselves that now, now their hearts had been transformed. Their hearts had been softened. Their consciences were guilty. They were undone, not just by the situation, but by the weight of their own sin. That is, he was setting the scene for grace. He was setting the scene for grace. That repentance always sets the scene for grace, doesn't it? Read with me Genesis 45, 1 through 8, to see what happens. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. nor harvest, And God sent me before you to preserve you for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Joseph's life always seemed to be defined by the actions and the desires of other people, didn't it? It's like he was a bystander into his own life. He didn't ask to be Jacob's favorite. Jacob made that decision. He didn't want to be sold into Egypt. His brothers made that decision. He didn't want to go to prison. Potiphar's wife made that decision. And so if this is a singular picture about a singular man and in singular circumstances, then what he should do in this moment is reap it to its fullest benefit. He should bring vengeance to his brothers. He should vindicate himself. He better make them pay that brought suffering to him. But that's not how Joseph understood it. And for those of us who live by faith and know in the enormity of God, and the sovereignty of God, that's not how we should see it either, either. Three different times, Joseph says, So, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph was not in Egypt primarily, primarily because of Jacob, or because of his brothers, or because of Potiphar's wife. They were all secondary causes, simply doing the very things that they want to do. The primary cause for Joseph being in Egypt was that God had sent him there. God had worked through Jacob's favoritism. God had worked through Joseph's brother's jealousy. God had worked through Potiphar's injustice. God had worked through Pharaoh's dreams. God had been there the whole time. Joseph, you see, was not a bystander. He was a servant of the Most High. That in our story... Pharaoh is not ultimate. Egypt is not ultimate. Jacob is not ultimate. His brothers towering over him in the cistern, they are not ultimate. God is ultimate. God's freedom is ultimate. Our present circumstances, our present struggles, our present afflictions are beneath his sovereign rule. And so God's plan and God's kingdom ensure us that our end will be greater than our present. See, God's ultimate authority empowers his people to be gracious with the ungracious. We see in Joseph what Jesus has taught us. We see him as the victim comforting the perpetrator. You see, it's because of God's sovereign superintending providence that we can bless those who persecute us. That we can be gentle with a boss that accosts us. That we can honor a government that may potentially oppress us. That we can forgive our, our dad or our mom or our former husband or wife who betrayed us so profoundly. Their injustice and hatred and meanness and betrayal will not be the final word. Every power beyond you is beneath the God God who sends you, that he is working these things together by his own authority. That brings us to the final final irony that I want you to see this morning. Every problem that befalls you will ultimately bless you. Every problem that befalls you will ultimately bless you. That Jacob actually does end up moving his whole family, all 70 of them from Canaan to Egypt. And they prosper even as the Egyptians languish. Think again about being those those Israelites that are escaping slavery in Egypt. And here in the the story, if you read all the way through, what you find is that the Hebrews in Egypt thrive while while Pharaoh actually begins to enslave the Egyptians. So at the ripe old age of 147 years old, Jacob finally dies. And as a guilty conscience always does, the brother's conscience begins to reveal itself yet again. How how they were concerned of what they had done to, to Joseph all those years ago. That what they become convinced of is that Jacob had provided for them a shield from the authority of their brother. And that their brother, because he loved his father, was not going to take it out on all of his brothers until he died. And so they become convinced that that, that Joseph is going to exact revenge against them and, and take them down. And they devise a plan to ensure their safety. And Joseph stops them cold. He stops them cold with grace. He says in one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And if you're a Christian, you're, you're a Christian only because this glorious verse is true. That God is this sovereign, that God is this in control, that God is this wonderful. See, Joseph doesn't let them off the hook, does he? He says, you meant it for evil. When you sold me into Potiphar's house, you meant it. When you had me at the bottom of the cistern while you ate your lunch, you meant it. You meant what you did to me. But what you meant was not nearly as great as what God meant. That God took what you meant and he meant it for something far greater. In fact, God meant it so that you, through my slavery, might be delivered. That as evil as they may be, God meant it for that much more good. And y'all, that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel. God doesn't let us off the hook. God overcomes our hook. We mean it, but he means it much more. there's, that there's more goodness in God than there is evil in us. And again, we come full circle to the bigness of God, that God is so good, so big, that God is so enormous that he is able to have the capacity for a grace, the capacity for a mercy that is even greater than our capacity for evil, wretchedness, and wickedness. All of Joseph's life, he had the promise of God but the promise of God appeared to be in conflict with his own personal experiences. But what we see in Genesis 41 through 50 is we see that finally in Joseph's life, the promise of God and the experiences of his life begin to coalesce. That that no more would he see it as being separate, but see it being fulfilled. That Joseph had 20 years for bitterness, to compound and metastasize in his heart and life. That by the time his brothers stood before him, he could have had such vile plans, such vile expectations, such raw hatred and anger and bitterness that he could have made their lives for the rest of their lives as long as he wanted it to be and as miserable as he wanted it to be. But instead, Joseph let grace and mercy metastasize and compound in his life. He let grace metastasize and spread through his body. He let grace compound in his account, not bitterness. Grace won. You see, the retrospective providence is always grace. We look at our lives and they appear to be filled with broken glass. And you can look over the course of your life and you see lots of broken glass. But what God does in his sovereign plan, what God does according to his providence, is he takes all of the broken glass of our lives and he transforms them into a grand mosaic that sings of his glory, that advances his kingdom, and that holds us up in the day of salvation until the day of his return. See, from start to finish, Genesis is the story of the gospel. Genesis 3 says that the serpent strikes man's heel and man's heel will crush his head. And here we are in Genesis 50. God uses the serpent's attempt to end the promise through murder, to perpetuate the promise through grace. That the serpent doesn't just lose, he takes part in his own demise. That his is a mission of self-destruction and suicide because God has more grace than he has evil. And in the hand of God, the bitter cup turns sweet see in Joseph the promise isn't just fulfilled partially isn't just preserved it's partially fulfilled the nations are hit are fed by the hand of Israel's son who apparently has come back from the dead God is bigger let's pray together Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 10.15 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.